Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. How many of us have eaten because we're sad and we've heard of that concept of comfort food to make us feel better and how we medicate ourselves sometimes with food? Well, today's guest is a groundbreaking leader in the space of emotional eating, eating disorders, and shining a light on it before anybody else was. We have Janine Roth, who is the author of 10 New York Times bestselling books and has been speaking and teaching workshops and offering retreats for over 30 years in the space of helping people learn how to have a good relationship with food. So let's dive in. i like to welcome to the show, Janine Roth. How are you doing, Janine? Great. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you about your work and your, your amazing work of what you've been doing uh, throughout the course of your life. And uh, my very first question is, how did you kind of get into this line of work? Because you were kind of at the forefront of what you do, right? Yes. Um, well, I was a, a crazy person around food, body, and weight. That's how I'd say. I li- I'd say I lived in a hell realm mm. probably my entire life, starting at by the time I was five or six, thought I was too fat. Um, started radically dieting when I was 11. By that, I mean, you know, making up my own diets with the one hot fat Sunday a day diet, the thousand dollar, I mean, the thousand calorie a day, uh, cookie diet, the Mott's applesauce and meatballs diet, the all grape nuts diet. I mean, I did some intense diets that I all made up. Plus I, I was addicted to amphetamines for four years and then I became anorexic. And through that entire time, even when I was anorexic weighing probably 30 pounds less than I weigh now, maybe, yeah, 30 pounds less than I weigh now, I still looked in the mirror and loathed myself. And so that self-loathing prompted the 17 years of gaining and losing more than a thousand pounds. And then finally, after the anorexia, 
and there were no names for it. I'm dating myself. Um, back in the last century, there people weren't calling it anorexic. There, there wasn't there, nothing like eating disorders was coined. None of that. I just felt like an insane person and very alone. And I gained 80 pounds in two months after being anorexic. And at that point, I wanted to kill myself and started uh, thinking about ways to do it and planning ways to do it. And I had worked in a suicide prevention and crisis center all throughout my 20s. So I knew what serious intent was and I was pretty serious. And I gave myself one last chance. And that was, I was gonna stop dieting. And I was going to let myself eat what I wanted to eat. I was going to see if it was possible to actually trust this body. And it, it wasn't really at the beginning because I was so filled with what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat and binging and all I really wanted to eat was sugar. Uh, so it took a little while, a couple of weeks of eating nothing but raw chocolate chip cookie dough. Um, and, but I wasn't guilty about it and I wasn't shaming myself because I realized for me, I was at the end of the line. Mm -hmm. It was either I go through this or I kill myself. And, and, and I don't mean to say that lightly because it wasn't a light thing. I was, I could have ripped myself apart. That's how much I hated myself. I could have banged into walls. I could have cut myself. Eating was my way to do all of that. And finally, I realized, I read a great book called Fat is a Feminist Issue. And in reading that book, I realized that perhaps there was a reason for all of this. I Or I was trying to express something I didn't know how to express through food. And maybe it was the most sane thing I'd ever done. And so that started me off. So let me ask you, when you, when you said you, at six, you started to think about this, that's extremely young at 11, you start dieting. What was it around in your environment? Was this something inside of you or did you see, were you modeling? Were you being, you know, your, your family, your community, your cultural environment, what was causing these images? Because, you know, and you didn't even have social media. Could you imagine no, social media, I, no. <laughs> Instagram and no. those things at that time. So no. what was what was it that actually triggered that? Well, my mom was a fat kid and very upset about having been a fat kid. Mm. And her mother took her shopping in the chubby section of Macy's oh. um, and uh, shamed her because her thighs rubbed together. Uh, and so she was determined that I not follow in her footsteps. Also, I think in those days, and I mean the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, parenting was very different than it is now. I don't think parents knew that right. criticizing your kids, telling your daughter that her ankles look like piano stools um, was not a good thing. I think I think that she thought, I think she firmly believed that criticizing me, so, telling me I was fat would lead me to want to be thin. And I wasn't a thin kid. You know, when I look at pictures of myself then, I wasn't fat, but I definitely was not thin. I was round. That's how I would say I was round. Wow. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I was raised in the seventies and early eighties. 
uh, and uh, and you know my parents, God bless them. Uh, culturally, you know, I'm a guy, I'm, and I'm also a male, so it's it's not as heavy as it is for for females. But culturally, I come from a Cuban household, and you had to eat everything on the plate. So there's that that mentality that you had to kind of break through. Uh, you would have someone saying, "Hey, you're getting a little, you know, getting a little chunky there." The, these little little things, you know, like the uncle would come over and say something, or the aunt would say, "Like, oh, it's getting too big." It, these kind of things, it does, it does help the programming in your mind to start thinking about these things, and then we get advertising, and then and even then, again, fifties and the seventies nothing compared to what we have today in regards to the body dysmorphia that, you know, like if you don't have a six pack, you're fat right. uh, kind of environment that we live in. And it's, I think it's gone the other way now. I think now, you know, you see plus size models and things like that, that would never been around even five, 10 years ago. Right. Um, but it, but it is, is something that we all kind of, I just thought it was interesting what caused it because I remember what caused it for me. And I, battled as well for many, many, I've gained and lost weight, binged and, you know, lost, you know, lost 50, 60 pounds and got into the best shape of my life that lasts a couple of years. But then the diet that I was on was unsustainable. Yes. And then one thing pops and then that yes. could be an emotion, which brings me to the next question would be the emotion about it. So you break up with a girlfriend, you lose the job, you do something clicks and then you tell yourself you're worth it. Go have some cheesecake. You're worth it. Go do this. Eat whatever you want. I mean, life is tough enough. These kind of stories you start telling yourself. And I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this story. The the um, I think Tony Robbins said this once, which was such a great story. And I love bringing it up. It's called the cheesecake story. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why we do this to ourselves. We're there in the middle, of the middle of a meal, beautiful meal. We eat it. We're stuffed completely beyond where we should have eaten, let's say. You know, let's say at the Thanksgiving meal. We've all been there. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yes. And then you're like, I'm stuffed. And then the cheesecake plate comes out. And everyone's like, would you like a piece of cheesecake? And you're like, in your brain, you're having this conversation. Go ahead, have the cheesecake. It's going to be fine. You'll work out a little bit more tomorrow. You'll be okay. And you eat the cheesecake. And then you get home that night. And you take your, your clothes off in front of the mirror and that same little voice says, you fat pig, I can't believe you ate the cheesecake. It's the same voice. What is that? And how can we like help deal with that voice, that, that, that little yappy thing in our head that does that to us? Well, I'll say a couple things about that, Alex. The first is go ahead, eat the cheesecake to you fat pig, I can't believe you ate the cheesecake. They are two sides of the same stick there. They're not really any different from each other. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, you deserve it. Go ahead, it's Thanksgiving. Or right. go ahead, you've been really good today. Or go ahead, um, you know, it tastes good, it won't hurt. And then the other side, you fat pig. Um, so those are basically, you can think of them as kind of, along a continuum. If you've got one, you're going to get the other one. And that's how it goes. So the uh, I could talk to you on the micro level there with, okay, what do we do when that self-critical voice comes? 
I could talk to you about that and maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But what we want to do is go meta to that whole thing. And we want to notice, or I want to notice, and this is where I've been working recently, not just with myself on those very old voices, but also with my, my students. Um, I've been working with what do you really believe about yourself? What is the so-called unavoidable conclusion that you came to maybe even before you could talk, based on the environment, based on the information you were getting from your caretakers, or probably by the time you could talk, five or six, the TV was blasting. Now it's social media, and you get certain images, and people tell you things, and friends, and family, and you, and you as a very young person, when you depending on the environment out there, you're depending on your parents, you're depending on your caretakers, you're depending on your siblings, you're dependent for your survival. And if what you're getting back is contain yourself, you're overwhelming, you're too needy, you're too big, you're too fat, you're eating too much, you will um, come to some First of all, your feelings will be hurt. It will affect you. You will be upset. Um, you know, as even as a three-year-old, you recognize what criticism feels like. Doesn't feel good. It feels like sort of getting stabbed. Mm -hmm. And I want to say from the outset, I've never met anybody who had enlightened parents, whose parents did not speak to them like this, whose parents... Um, just gave their their kid, you know, yes, sweetheart. Yes, I understand. You know, there was kind of a perfect understanding. Parenting is hard. Yeah. And, and so we get we get the message that we're not okay. We get that message. And we each come to particular conclusions. I looked around in my family, for instance, and I felt like there was no one there for me. There just wasn't my mother, my father, my brother, my cousins. It was quite a dysfunctional family. And I came to the conclusion that it was because something was really wrong with me, mm. fundamentally wrong with me. And I see that in a lot of my students when I take them back to their early conclusions. This goes way beyond the stuff with food. This conclusion or decision you've made about yourself something's wrong with me i'm not enough i'm overwhelming i'm worthless um uh i uh, i am unlovable you you name it that then you then want to repress that cover it up and then you start developing adaptive behaviors well, let me be nicer than I think I am. I'm really a mean person. And so that's why my parents are like this because kids can't help but blame themselves. And sometimes they are blamed, but even when they're not, they blame themselves. If their mother's lonely or depressed or it goes away or father unavailable, it's my fault. What's wrong with me? A kid makes a decision, gets an adaptive behavior. It's too painful to feel that starts to become nice, starts to become not, 
uh, true to themselves, separate from themselves. Well, I really am a mean person or I'm worthless. So now I'll make up for it by. And the whole thing is a mechanism there uh, and leads to, well, if something's wrong with me and I'm not enough and I'm never going to get enough and I'm unavoidable, I might as well eat. Mm. Might as well because it hurts to be me. And eating at least gives me momentary pleasure. I get to forget about it from the moment that one bite. Now, after the second or third bite, people are in their minds again. So they're, then it's rope. It's, it's interesting because when, you know, I'm going through what I've gone through in my life, and as you're talking, I'm just thinking about using my own experience in my head that, you know, when you do eat um, healthy, not healthy food, but when you eat, you know, comfort food, as they call it, comfort food, there's a couple of different things that cause that. There's either the comfort that you felt when you first ate it back right. when you were a child, like, That's oh yeah, right. that cake that I ate, that that cheesecake or that flan that I ate when I was a kid, yes. they loved me then. And that's what I'm associating with flan. But also there's, so there's that kind of release of that emotion, but also the the chemical reaction in your brain, you're getting endorphin hits yes. from, from the sugar, from the salt, from the fat. So I always tell people like when you go to a fast food joint, that food is chem chemically de designed. And even if it's not like at this extreme as like, let's say, you know, one of the big chains, but even if it's, you're going to a, a smaller chain, it's, you know, fat, cheese, salt, uh, sugar, that's all triggers in our brain to continue to eat more and more. And I always used to say is like, you know, when I used to go eat in and out, Boy, it tasted good going in, but boy, it felt like crap afterwards because your body, it's not really built to eat like that all the time. Right. So it's really, yes. it's really fascinating um, to see that. Now, I want to ask you, because you've kind of mentioned it a little bit in regards to your family and, and, and your environment. Let's say you start trying to make changes in, in your life. Let's say you start changing the story that you've told yourself. But your immediate environment doesn't support it, like your wife, like your you know relatives, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your parents. Maybe they aren't supportive. Uh, and then maybe your workplace isn't supportive of it. Maybe your culture or your religion isn't supportive of it. Of it. it becomes that much more difficult to make those changes. And a lot of times those changes is, you know, it's cultural. It's something that's like when I told my my Cuban parents that I wasn't going to eat meat anymore 10 years ago. They were like, what do you, how are you going to live? <laughs> right. I'm like, well, I'll just go outside and graze. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was a cultural thing and it's taken a long time for them to just see, oh, he's alive and doing well. So apparently something's working, but that was a cultural shift that, that needed it. So what advice do you have for people dealing with that environmental, cultural, religious or family units that don't support change in these stories that you're trying to change in yourself? You know, sometimes when I go out to eat or don't go out to eat or go out to eat and don't eat because I'm not hungry and I'm with a group of people, let's say 
eight people and they're, how come you're not eating? How come you don't want this? Come on. The, the, this is just a little small segment of what you're talking about, but I know because I've thought this through many, many times. If I eat because they're eating, it's not their bodies that suffer. It's my bodies. At some point, I will leave them, I will go home, and I will be suffering like the cheesecake story. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, so this is up to me. This is my, my body. This is my decision. And more than that, I am willing to stand in what's true. So there's taking a stand in what you know is true. Is it easy? No, but you sounds like you did it anyway with the meat. So so your parents were like, oh my God, how are you going to survive? And you knew what was true for you. You knew what you wanted to do. You know, many of us are what I call ahead of the medicine. So the culture mm. is, uh, the medicine of the culture is do what everybody else is doing. Be part of the conditioning, be part of the cultural norm, fit in, don't stand out because if you stand out, uh, you know, the tr- the whole tribal thing, you'll get killed, something will happen, it won't be good, you'll be ostracized, nobody will love you. This is what we're talking about is ahead of that. By that, I mean, it's about, yeah, I, I can see that the magnetization is to fit in and to do what people want me to do, to do what it looks like people will approve of, what my family does, what um, Instagram and TikTok say, what, what, you know, just the whole thing. But you know what? I know and it takes a while to get to that. You just sometimes just get little teeny inklings like you knew you wanted to stop eating meat. Right. I knew, you know, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer a couple of years ago. I'm fine. Thank goodness. Good, good, but one good. of the things that my oncologist said to me was stop eating any sugar at all. No sugar. Um, cancer feeds on sugar. Now, some people believe that and some people don't, but I decided to stop eating sugar. And, and I mean, I had read a book a gazillion years ago called Sugar Blues that was actually about how terrible sugar was for you. It's out of print now. Um, my copy probably is worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars at this point. But I remember being shocked that this person had stopped eating sugar right? Uh, because sugar was all I ever wanted to eat. Sugar was the reason I ate. Sugar was the reason for being alive in the food arena. Um, so I didn't stop eating sugar. I didn't eat that much of it. But when the oncologist said, stop eating sugar, still the amount of pressure, light pressure I get, 
oh, have this piece of cake. Oh, have this cookie. Oh, I made this. This is a homemade thing. Surely this can't be so bad. Just even that. And I'm really good at saying, you know, thanks, but no, it still is standing out, being alone, but understanding. And of course, having had cancer is a little different than making an, well, it's not that different than making an elective choice, but deciding, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. It's not that hard. It's hard, but after the first five or 10 times, it's not that hard. Agreed. And it's just about, again, reprogramming yourself and changing those habits in your brain. And I agree with you. I stopped eating sugar, like, you know, processed sugar and added sugar. I mean, I eat fruits. I eat things that have sugar in it naturally. That's fine. But I stopped eating sugar a long time ago and it really did help. And um, it seems extreme to other people, but it's the same thing as, and I've said this so many times on the show. I I remember in the seventies, when yoga was starting to come into vogue or jogging, you remember when jogging was I people, do. people looked at people who jogging like, where are you running to? You're insane yeah. ahead, ahead of the medicine. It's such right. a great term because there's so many things in our culture that at one moment people thought you were nuts podcasting. What are you doing? All and right. now everybody wants to be a podcast. <laughs> everybody wants to have a show and an audience and build all this stuff up. And with food and with meditation, yoga, I mean, vegetarianism, my God, you, they, they I mean, there's, we're still beating back the images of the emaciated, you know, vegetarian who just ate carrots all day because there wasn't enough information out there about nutrition and about what you could eat. Yes. And like that. Right. And now there's bodybuilders and world-class athletes who are completely plant-based and it, it's changed a lot, but I love that term that you said ahead of the medicine. <laughs> yes. Right. Now with, um, when you are trying to reprogram yourself, what can we do to help change the record, change those connections in our brain? Cause so many of us have like sugar. Like if I told you, I told somebody right now, look, you, you can't eat. It was really interesting on a side note this weekend, I was out with some friends and some of them, you know, heard that we were vegan and they just, they, they literally freaked. They were like freaking out. They're like, oh my God, we're going to go out. Like, where are we going to go? What are we going to eat? I'm like, guys, calm down. You can go anywhere you want, <laughs> find something to eat there. It'll be fine. You know, I'm in Austin. This is not the middle of nowhere. We could, there's plenty of plant-based foods here. And they just, and it was such an interesting thing. And I could even hear almost little derogatory comments quietly just being dropped in. I'm like, oh, well, that's not vegan. And they were trying to like break down the idea of the diet. And I was just like, wow, that's interesting. They feel that there's a threat to them and their way of life if you're doing something different. So that's again, that whole reprogramming. So what can we do to kind of change the ideas in our head about no sugar? no meat or just eating healthy or no fast food or these kind of things? First of all, it's very individual. It's what feels good. On the, There are always two levels and I'm always working with people on two levels. One is the physical level with what, when, and how, also where you're actually eating. What, when, how, where. Does 
your eating take place. That is really important to pay attention to. Um, to start paying attention to the way you treat yourself around food. Are you standing up? Are you grazing at the refrigerator? Are you eating at the stove? Are you on TikTok or Instagram or doing your email or talking on the phone when you eat? Are you paying attention? The quality of your attention, just like in meditation, where in meditation, you notice your thoughts. You are the noticer, not the noticed. So you're witnessing basically what you're doing around food. That's part of it, is paying attention and doing it so that there is a big element of kindness in what you do around food. Kind of I would say self-devotion, tenderness, kindness, because the kinder you are to yourself, and that's different than being indulgent. I'm not talking about be kind to yourself and go eat six bags of potato chips followed by a gallon of ice cream. That's not kind. That is abusive. So kindness is, I encourage people you can tell I don't have a lot of men. I mostly deal with women. I encourage people to talk to themselves and say, okay, sweetheart, what, what is it, first of all, that's going on that's sending you to food when you're not hungry? So the first thing is, when are you eating? Are you hungry? Uh, on a scale of one to 10, one is really hungry, five is comfortable, 10 is stuffed. If you're starting at five, you're not hungry at all. You're eating for other reasons. And then you start asking yourself, what are those other reasons? So you notice then if there's that voice in your head, is that, did you get triggered? I really, really encourage people to notice they're triggered. Okay, I was doing fine. I didn't want to eat until my colleague, my boss, my friend, my partner, my kid, the kid's teacher, somebody made a comment about me or one of my kids or my work and I got triggered. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And what, and now I find suddenly I was feeling great and now I feel collapsed or I feel like something's wrong with me. Like that conclusion that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, I don't know how it happened. I was skipping along or walking along my day. Everything was fine. Now I feel like I'm two feet tall. I feel collapsed. I feel wrong. I feel bad. I'm either making myself wrong, blaming myself or I'm blaming somebody else. What happened? And so this requires some degree of kindness and tenderness and willingness to say to yourself, well, what happened when uh, my friend didn't text me back? I had a story going that she's doing other things. She never answers my text. She doesn't like me. I knew this was gonna happen. She isn't really my friend. Well, forget her. So 
I have now interpreted that and I'm feeling bad about myself. Underneath that, well, forget her, is the feeling like something's wrong with me. And that's why I'm turning to food. And that's that voice that you're asking me about. The voice is, if you put it in the you, something is wrong with you. Mm. You did it wrong. You did it bad. You shouldn't have texted her. You should have waited two more days to text her. You should have known this was going to happen. She was a lousy pick as a friend. You always pick lousy friends. Yeah, spiral um, and you spiral. You know, you're yeah. spiraling down with that voice. When you notice that that's happening and you notice it on a sensate level, usually in your body, small, collapse, paralyzed, bad, that's when you look back and you say, okay, what happened? It takes a little time to catch yourself because if what you do then is, well, something's wrong with me and I might as well eat, that then that voice is double because then you have basically abandoned yourself, rejected yourself by saying something is wrong with me. That's self-judgment, that's self-rejection, that's abandonment because you were feeling hurt. And so you came right in with, well, you should have known better. You shouldn't have texted her. You should wait longer than you text. Something is wrong with you. And so you rejected yourself there. You abandoned yourself. Rejection and abandoned, self-abandoned, same thing. And then you reject and abandon yourself by eating to and make it better. And abuse So now yourself, we have though. a double whammy. Mm -hmm. We have the whammy of, she didn't text me and I feel, you know, hurt about that. Let me see if I can see what I believe about that. What's the conclusion I'm making about myself because my best friend didn't text me. I'm feeling like something's wrong with me. Um, I'm feeling like I'm overwhelming. I want too much. I'm too needy. Then I get to step in and be with myself there and just like put my hand on my heart, say, oh, sweetheart, you know, is that actually true? You know, that Byron Katie question, that first question, is that true? And most of the time you will know immediately, no, it's not true. And you'll be able to be the one you're waiting for. Food isn't what you're waiting for. And your friend's text isn't what you're waiting for. It's you being with you that you're waiting for. And you have left yourself until you come back to yourself. And when you come back to yourself, that voice goes away. Yes. Agree with everything you just said, because as I you know, on the show, as I speak to more spiritual masters and, and yogis and things like that, a lot of the, I keep hearing common threads and you said something so interesting that when you come back to yourself is when you're looking for things outside of yourself for happiness, you're going to, you're going to fail. When you look for outside things to make yourself happy, you need to be happy inside of yourself. So my next question is why are we so damn tough on ourselves so brutal with our voice to ourselves we beat ourselves up more that we say things to ourselves that we would never in a million years say to another human being why is that 
you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is developmental. So the superego, which is that inner judge, inner parent, critical parent, whatever you want to call it, is developmental. And all of us have it. All of us have one. So there is no way of avoiding it. It's installed. You keep using the word programmed, which is mm -hmm. a great word because that program, superego program, is installed. It's installed in us before we even know what's going on. What's also installed, Alex, is what you said before that, which is that we believe since being a kid that the answer and the love is out there. And that if only we could get it in the right combination, the right person, the right success, the right amount of money, the right house, the right friend, the right partner, uh, the right dog, the right, right job, book, the yeah. right anything, then we would be happy. And that comes from being a kid as well, because... You're dependent on other people for your survival. So we get used to looking out there for the answer. And until we realize, and this really takes a while because you look around and everybody's looking for it out there and the right weight, the right body, the right, the right, you know, six pack, you said the right you know, amount of muscles, tone, Body the fat. right, yeah. the, the right whole thing. You fill in the blank. If I only had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. And the thing is that even though many of us, many of us, I, I would reckon to say that almost everybody who's listening to this has already had the experience dozens of times of getting what they thought was going to do it. Even if it's a piece of cake or it's a job or it's a relationship or losing weight. I mean, I start off every workshop I do by asking people, how many of you have been on a diet and everybody raises their hand. How many of you have lost weight on that diet? Everybody raises their hand. How many of you believed before you went on that diet that losing weight was going to make you happy? Everybody raises their hand. Some of them are just not very happy about raising their hand because they know where I'm going. And how many of you were actually once and for all forever happy when you lost weight. And of course, nobody can raise their hand. We've gone from everybody to nobody because they wouldn't be sitting in a workshop with me if they were forever happy. Right. So everybody has had the direct experience of getting something out there that we thought would make us happy in here and it didn't do it. But it's almost like this well, first of all, it's a habit. It's a cultural habit. 
And we keep believing, we keep persisting. I've had people say to me, I have lost weight 30 times in my life. And I still believe that if only I could do it one more time, one more time, I would never have to do it again. Because each of those 30 times, something happened. My mother got sick. My kid got sick. My husband left me. I lost my job. You know, like that. A friend um, moved across the country. There's always a reason. Another outside reason why we leave ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yes, to everything you just said, it's... It's so it's so fascinating to see what um what we do to ourselves. Uh, it, it's you know you go back you look back at what you've done to yourself, and this is only after as you said it takes time. You look back at the years, and you're like, okay, in my twenties when I thought when I said I looked horrible, you go back and like I would kill to look like I did in my twenties, <laughs> right? You're and people are like oh in my thirties oh I'm like you kill to look like you did in your thirties or feel like you felt in your thirties, you know, and it's it's just this vicious thing that we keep doing with ourselves. And so it's so interesting that we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, I've met people who are truly, if not close to really feel comfortable in their own skin and I, when you meet those kind of people, there's an energy, there's a confidence, there's a, it's not arrogance, there's just a, a truth, a knowing within themselves about themselves. That you can feel. You can feel it. You can feel it. You could also feel someone who's extremely insecure. Like I told you before we started, I, I work in the film industry, so you can only imagine <laughs> what I've had to see. And, you know, you you work with, you know, some of these major movie stars and you go, oh, I understand why they... People are attracted to them. There's an energy about them. There's this thing. But then when you dig in deeper, you're like, wow, the, you know, once you get past the the glamour and you look at the human, like they're struggling with things that we can't even comprehend. Mm -hmm. like, you know, like you and I, you know, we're, you know, semi-public figures, but we're not Brad Pitt, you know? So can you imagine the kind of stress that they're under? <laughs> well, I think what it does is put stress on just like anything external like that, any kind of pressure or need to look a certain way or be a certain way, um, anything that really um, emphasizes image puts pressure on all the different parts of you that don't believe that, that don't believe the story, that believe you are not worth it. There's a big difference. And People know this. I read something that Will Smith said a couple uh, months ago. I guess it's in his book mm -hmm. um, where he said before he got famous, he believed that being famous was really going to, this is a paraphrase, heal everything that was uncomfortable that needed to be healed. And then he got famous and that, and it didn't heal those things. And there was no, if only I were famous, it would all be good. And I think that discrepancy between that big public figureness, like Anthony Bourdain, I was just reading about him recently. 
um, there was a big article in the Times. I guess there's a new biography about him and the last couple of texts he sent. I'm so lonely. I hate my job. I don't like being famous. He had the, you know, he had supposedly everything. Fame, money, good looks, a fabulous job, travel. But whatever was, let's just call it unresolved, unhealed, the parts of him that he didn't love. And so that's why this work that, that we're talking about doing is so important to do because just what you said, when somebody is comfortable in their own skin, when they don't leave themselves, when they have presence, you feel that. But when somebody doesn't have, and so that radiates out and you treat them appropriately with respect. There's a sense of, oh, wow. You know, there's a kind of uprightness, but when somebody is radiating because of feeling I'm not okay, I'm broken, something's wrong with me, they radiate that as well. And you pick that up. It's so interesting. And it comes back. It's like a radio tower where you're emitting a frequency of, I, I realized that with, some friendships I've had where I kept feeling like, why are these falling into the same pattern? And then I realized there was a very deep belief that I was having about not being good enough, somehow radiating that out, coming back in the way these friends treated me. And I kept thinking it was out there instead of in here. You know, it's, it's, when I had a, a, some relatives come over with some some young boys uh, that you know were unruly, let's say, and the parents didn't seem to have a real good control of them. Like just they, you can just sense they were just, I, I can't, I can't. And then they would run into my friend, who is one of these people who is very. You just meet them and you go, oh, they 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 demand respect without saying a word. Yeah. And the kids picked up on it and the parents were like, how are you doing that? And she's like, I'm just doing, I'm just being me. And those kids were angels around my friend, angels yes, around my friend. Right. And it's so true. It's that energy that you, you put out and people do feel it, you know, and you can go woo woo about it or not. It's like, I'm no, I, and I always use this example. I know many people at, at one point or another, I've gone into a car dealership and wanted to take a shower afterwards <laughs> uh, because of like, right. oh, I feel so sleazy with these, you know, uh, this person or you've met someone who's made you feel that way, whether it's a woman who's getting picked up at the bar by some sleazeball or you meet a, a sleazy salesperson or something like that, that you, you feel that energy. And that comes from within, which is what goes back to the theme that we're talking about is understanding that what we are looking for is inside of us. And that's what all the great sages and all the great texts, spiritual texts throughout history have said. And food is just another, it's the food is the Porsche. It's the job. It's the thing. But food, unlike those other things, have an immediate effect on us. And that's the blessing of it. So the great blessing is that it's a portal, an immediate portal to what's going on inside. 
So if you find yourself standing up, grazing, overeating, binging, eating things that make you sick, that's a red flag. That's the time. Because, you know, I often say that you eat the way you live and you live the way you eat. So eating the way you live means that there's some kind of um, belief that's operating there. Do you believe you deserve pleasure? Do you believe you can get enough? Do you believe you need to deprive yourself in order to be okay? What do you actually believe about being alive? Because that absolutely shows up in your relationship with food, which is a fabulous part immediate part. It's like food is a Rorschach test. You know, I don't mean it a test, but you get to see immediately what you're believing in that moment about yourself and about, about living that day. I'm not okay. I don't deserve this. Or no, I do. Part of what I'm talking about and the process that I teach is that when you see that because I've I've just, or you've just eaten, or I've just eaten, let's just say I've just eaten a lot of chocolate to the point where I'm sick. Then I get to say, okay, honey, now I can go either one way or the other. I can say, I, you know, you've written 10 books about this and you've eaten how much chocolate? Really? You hypocrite. <laughs> how could you do that? Wow. Or, and that's the way the voice talks. Mm -hmm. I call it the GPS from the twilight zone, that voice. Or you can say, wow, that's a lot of chocolate for somebody who wasn't really hungry. What's going on? And then I can sit down and the quicker you can forgive yourself, be tender with yourself, be kind to yourself. Kindness and relaxation are the answers, Alex. There, Because the quicker you can do that, the more truthful you can become, the more authentic you can become. And what every spiritual teacher says um, somewhere in their teachings is that the truth will set you free. Being, and, and it starts with being authentic in this moment with the teeny, teeny, teeny little things you do every day in which you are leaving yourself or lying to yourself. A friend said to me, um, actually it wasn't a friend, it was one of my teachers who said to me when uh, one of my friendships with women exploded years ago, when was the first, what was the first lie you told yourself about this person? And that stopped me in my tracks because I knew from the get-go, but I didn't want to know what I knew. And sometimes I will often say to my students, what do you know about your relationship with food that you don't want to know? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because you know, you know what it is. Well, I know that um, I eat whenever I feel hurt or um, 
Bread does not actually agree to me, but I love it and I won't give it up. I remember the first time somebody told me that I was allergic. I had some time gliadin, some kind of enzyme, and I couldn't eat gluten. This was 22 years ago. And uh, I was on my way to Greece and I refused to give up eating baklava. It was, well, I mean, I mean, well, I mean okay, I mean, right. It's, ba it's baklava. It's the Muslim, Muslim. I mean, it's baklava, but guess what? <laughs> guess what it has in it? Gluten. And I just felt like, no, I'm not doing that. It's lying in the sand. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so you become authentic, truthful. You start listening to yourself and you realize that what anybody else is saying to you, now, of course you need information and you need um, all kinds of things, but you already know what you know. And if you don't know, you ask yourself, what do you know that you don't want to know? And that will often get to it because that is the beginning. That's the where the thread starts. If you totally, that whole ball of wool gets totally rolled out there, it starts with the thread and that's the thread. You, uh, I think you once said in an interview that food is spiritual. It, can you, can you dig into that a little bit for me? Well, what I meant by that was exactly what we're talking about, which is that if you follow the portal or the doorway to what you're doing with food. You know, one of the things I wrote in Women, Food, and God was we don't want to eat hot fudge Sundays as much as we want our lives to be hot fudge Sundays. We want to be the fullest expression of who we are. We want to be lit up. We want to know why we're here and we want to express that. That um, you know, there's a quote by Eckhart Tolle that I love that he says, many things matter in your life, but only one thing matters absolutely. And what matters absolutely is this, is to know yourself. That was on the door of the Oracle at Delphi, know thyself. And so what food helps you do by being an outpicturing of what you believe about yourself is it helps you to know what you're believing about yourself. And it helps you to see the ways you're not allowing yourself to be lit up, the obstacles that you are putting in your own way, the beliefs you have that are not true. Did you ever see a baby, maybe except for Rosemary's baby, and you know, which was a devil baby. And I'm sure many of you don't even know that movie, but in any case, it was a devil's baby, except for Rosemary's baby. Um, babies are born clear and lit and unobstructed, and they don't take themselves to be a self, a solid self, until they're told, this is who you are. This is your body. This is your name. This is what you feel. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. But what we want to do and what food is a doorway to doing, and this is the part that's spiritual, is help you see who you actually are when you're not adapting to your outside environment, when you're not leaving yourself, abandoning yourself, when you're speaking the truth, when you're being true to yourself, that is spiritual. 
that's as another teacher of mine says, the higher octave of love. Great answer. That's a great, great answer. Now, do you have any tips for us on how we should approach eating and approach food in general? Well, I do have a set of eating guidelines that are online that are in my book, Women, Food, and God. I think they're all over the place by now that I wrote them when I first started this work. So it's been decades and they mostly have to do with paying attention to your hunger, paying attention to food, figuring out what your body and that your mind wants, stopping when you've had enough, sitting down, not lying about food, because when you lie about what you eat, you're basically saying to yourself, if they, the people I'm lying to, saw me, they wouldn't love me. Therefore, I must hide and therefore I must sneak. And so it, those guidelines are really, truly about paying attention and being kind to yourself. And then I've been taking people through a process now where I say to them, because at my retreats, which I teach twice a year, the first session, well, the second session, actually, because the first session is stillness and movement, a little uh, Tai Chi. But after that, it's we all eat together and we all bring our meals. And so we, even on Zoom, we all eat together. And I say to people, show me your food. And so they show all their plates of food. And after I ask them about the hunger scales, I will then say, who chose this food? And of course, they chose it, nobody, but they didn't really choose that food. What the answers will be, will be, well, the four-year-old whose mother told her she couldn't have mashed potatoes chose this food. The nine-year-old who was told she shouldn't eat bread, she's the one who chose this food. The 14-year-old who is absolutely determined, now these women are 30, 40, 50, 60, 14-year-old who was told that her legs were too fat and she needed to go on a diet. And she's the one who's basically saying, screw you, I'm not going to. And not only am I not going to go on a diet, I'm going to eat everything in sight. So it's really important when you're choosing the food. And you know, Alex, I would say that because these habits are so ingrained and as you called it, installed, we need support. You know, it's very hard to do this alone. We can get it and we know um, God, what she's saying is true or something rings true for me. But what I have seen in myself and also with the students that I work with, I have a group of about 70 or 80 ongoing students that I've been tracking, some of which only a few months, but some of which a couple of years and some of which many is 10 years how much kindness and support it takes to, it's like we're standing, the culture is the tsunami coming towards us. And we're saying, okay, I know I can eat when I'm hungry. I know I can pay attention, but which is basically the saying, the same as I can surf the tsunami. It is, tsunami isn't gonna, and you need support to do it. Mm -hmm. However you get it. Now, you mentioned something earlier about um, 
that you mostly most of your your students are women. Do you have men, and how do you approach this in a male? Because men, I think, more now than ever, are dealing with a lot of the struggles that were closeted before, are now coming out for men of like we're struggling with this too because we have the same images, we have the same programming, we had the same people telling us growing up you're too chunky, you got to get you got to get big muscles, you got this or that, you need that six pack. How do you approach that uh, with men? We all want the same thing, Alex. You know, it's, this is not gender specific. I started out working with women when I started my little teeny groups in Santa Cruz for which I charged a dollar a night. Um, it's not gender specific because we all have these unavoidable conclusions we've come to. I'm wrong, I'm bad, I'm not lovable, I'm too much, I'm needy, I'll I'll never make it, um, I'm ugly, I'm worthless. Um, and we act those out without realizing we act those out through our relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And so it's not really gender specific. We all want the same things. We want to be ourselves, to feel like, I'm allowed to take up space here, this, and I'm allowed to have joy and pleasure and be lit up. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests, what is your definition of a good life? My definition of a good life is to understand that many times who I take myself to be is not actually who I am and be able to question it and realize that I took on something that wasn't mine and and up comes what is mine, which is really most of the time a sense of joy and peace and clarity. What is your mission in this life? To express that. And I feel like I was given certain gifts, really, like writing. I discovered writing or writing discovered me when I was in fifth grade. And so that's a gift that I want to be true to. And keep expressing what I know, because not everybody likes to write. Not everybody wants to put into words what's going on. But in the act of putting it into words, many people can read it. So I think it's being true to that gift and also to speaking it, to teaching. And where can people find out more about you and your your events and your seminars and retreats? I think you have a retreat coming up. Uh, Where can they find out more about that stuff? They can find out at JanineRoth.com under events. Um, And there's also a lot of free stuff there. There are a lot of downloads. There are a lot of articles. I do a blog on Facebook. Um, The retreats are twice a year. They're six days. And they're immersive experiences with layers and layers and layers and layers of support after that. And then I do public events as well. So all of that, I really encourage people to find out more and to go to my website to find out more. 
JanineRoth.com. And when is that new, the retreat? I know it's coming up in November, right? Yeah, that retreat is, I'm pretty sure it's November 8th to, I'll tell you in a sec, um, November 8th to the 13th. All right. Fantastic. And I'm also doing a, a free event, um, but you can also find that out at the website. Janine, it has been such a pleasure and honor speaking to you. You, I, I want to thank you so much for all the amazing work you've done over the decades uh, and really helping people with this, because I think it's something that we all, I think every human being almost on this planet has to deal with at one point or another in their lives. So I truly, truly appreciate you being on the show and thank you again for all your mm. love and support to people. So thank you. Oh, Alex, you have such a big heart and you're so earnest and sincere about what you say and how you say it. So thank you. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. I want to thank Janine so much for coming on the show and sharing her knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash one four four. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.